to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, our contributors through Patreon.com, they're great, and you can take that to the... Bank. Uh, to Patreon.com slash Double Loop Podcast to join the crowd, the ever-growing crowd that is uh, contributing to our show. All right, what you got for me? So I don't know why this popped in my head, but here it goes. When a body meets a body. There are sparks? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> no. I was thinking when a body meets a body, the first body will recommend to the second body, hey, you should contribute to the Double Loop Podcast at patreon.com. Well, we are uh, having even more and more join in and want to say thank you to a few more over the past couple weeks that have uh, joined the crowd. That would be Joshua. Big thanks to you. Also to James and continuing the J trend. Also to James. Uh, two different Jameses. Jameses? Jameses. James, Jameses. Jameses. Okay. Uh, I have, uh, have started contributing through Patreon. So thank you very much, guys. Uh, definitely appreciate it. Go to patreon.com slash double podcast if you want to uh, help us out as well. So I, I take it you never had to read Catcher in the Rye in high school. No, I did. Um, I remember thinking it was, thinking that uh, Halden Coalfield was kind, kind of, of a dumbass. Dick. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the general but, uh, consensus. Yeah, when a body meets a body, coming through the Rye. Oh, okay. That's the references. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I've I've learned later that. It, what you're supposed to do is read it when you're, you know, junior high, early high school, and think that, you know, Holden, or Holden Caulfield is like total genius and everything, and then reread it later in life and think that, uh, you know, he's just uh, kind of a dick. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I just read it too late because when I read it at first, I'm like, this is all so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just a little trivia thing. Uh, J.D. Salinger had a son who became an actor, and not a very well-known actor. Uh, do you do you know this at all? You know, uh, no, I don't. I'm I'm hoping you're going to give me a J.D. Salinger son, Kevin Bacon Erdos number. <laughs> oh no, not <laughs> not that far. But he starred in a um, Marvel superhero movie in the early '90s. Uh, he was the early '90s Captain America. Oh wow! I, the Roger Corman, the produced. Roger Corman. I do yeah. remember that. That was horrible. <laughs> really, really bad. Wow! Great, great trivia, Eric. Captain in that movie, Captain America seems like his greatest power is um, faking being carsick and then stealing someone's car. He, <laughs> he did it like two or three times. Anyway, we're going to get into uh, some more discussions here about juries or potential jurors' interpretation of forensic evidence. There's an article that uh, is uh, recently out in pre-publication. We're going to talk about a little bit about our episode from last week, an interview with Laura Keck. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to get on with uh, Gianni Ribeiro, one of the authors of this article, to talk to a little bit about her. So we got a lot to get to. Glenn, where do you want to start? Well, let's let's go back to last week's episode a little bit. And you know, one of the first things I wanted to talk about was, of course, these scenarios, very specific scenarios I was giving Laura. And, you know, uh, there were reasons why when she would ask questions, I had answers immediately because the case I was talking about, the, the drugs in the trunk, 
the guy driving up from, you know, Texas to Minnesota, finding 13 of his latent prints in different layers versus the outside and so on, the grandmother in the car. This was actually a real case that, that I had worked. Okay. And I used this case. Uh, I don't know why. It's kind of always stuck in my head. But, I, I well, one aspect of the case was I got my ass handed to me on the stand in that case because it was very early uh, on in my career and I didn't document uh, my identifications, certainly nothing like today. In fact, I was trained not to. I was trained, don't put anything in your notes, just put your conclusions. And I certainly didn't have a chart with me. I didn't have any bench notes other than one latent fingerprint suitable for identification, identified to so-and-so number two finger. That was it. That's all it was in there and the defense attorney really did a very so he did a great job cross-examining me and it kind of oh scarred me in some ways and and, (laughs) but it also really changed the trajectory of how i considered documentation and why you know the value of it and i have to admit that if i didn't have those 13 latent prints on various surfaces on the inside and a fairly clear-cut case I often think about how that defense attorney did such a good job of cross-examining me. I really wonder if the jury would have convicted him had it been, say, a single latent print on the outside of the packaging, you know, in a vehicle. And, you know, so I, I've, I've always had this case yeah, in, yeah. in the forefront of my brain, and I use this with lay people all the time running through that set of, of questions I asked Laura. And like I said, she answered every one pretty much the way most people do when I talk, you know, when I ask those questions, other than the charting question that threw me off, because most people say I expect at least a chart of the latent in the case. I don't expect 13 charts, but I would expect at least one, which, of course, I didn't have with me when I testified. Right, right. So anyway, that that's where all that was coming from and why that, um, where, <laughs> the, the basis for that material. Well, it's interesting because it, it takes me back to, I think, one of the first cases uh, where I testified to an identification that I had developed on 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 evidence, and that was also in a drug case. And it was a little different in this case because it was a, uh, a retrial. Only part of the evidence had been processed for latent prints the first time. I think I ended up with a hung jury, and then it came back for more evidence to be processed, and I had to end up going through unwrapping all of it. It was marijuana, so it didn't have all the the sticky goop of that you would find in heroin or other kind of packaging. It's just typical plastic wrap uh, kind of stuff. Uh, and only ended up finding one of that defendant's fingerprints, but it was all the way in the middle of one of the uh, uh, the wrappings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also thinking kind of a couple years ahead where the prosecution asked for uh, charts to come in in a different case. And it just so happened that there were three IDs. Uh, she wanted them all three charted up. Hmm. And it just so happened that there was an easy one, uh, kind of a medium one, and a really you know messy, distorted, low you know number of minutiae kind of print that was real difficult to see. So, and you know, I went through and and talked at least a little bit about all three during my testimony. It's not all cases where you get that opportunity to sure to to have to show that variety to the jury of what all the different types of latent prints can look like. Yeah. 
Well, and one thing I wanted to talk about too a little bit was her answer about as a juror, she would have wanted to know more about where that packaging came from, you know, and I thought that was really interesting. And it's, it's something that occasionally comes up again when I talk to lay people, but she was really specific about, well, I want to know, did that duct tape come from his house or did the right. aluminum foil come from his, you know, kitchen pantry or whatever? And of course, those are things that we would never address in the case. The, no, that's <laughs> never going to right. happen. But it's so interesting that that was such a sticking point for her because I have heard defense bring that up as a, well, of course his fingerprints could be on it because, you know, the aluminum foil was, you know, was in his home and the um, saran wrap was in his home. But that doesn't mean that he's the one that packaged up those drugs. Right. It would almost be like the the prosecutor would have to be careful to look at the evidence and see okay this is a you know 12 foot long stretch of of saran wrap and there's fingerprints at this end and some in the middle and then some at that end so even if the the saran wrap was in his house and yeah he might have touched it if he had used it to wrap up his leftovers one night his fingerprints would only be at one end of it and wouldn't be you know, along this entire stretch of saran wrap, unless he was the one that was actually either handling it during the wrapping or later on after it was already a package. Would you have documented though where in uh, in a, in a layer? You know, if you're taking apart all of those, because of course I'll document which layer, right. but I I would never have thought to have documented this is on the edge of the saran or you know on this or this is in the middle or. If you roll it out from end to end, it's six feet long, and it's somewhere in the middle between the four and fifth foot. Uh, I mean, I would never do that. Well, for for me, you know, for especially for saran wrap unwrapping bundles, that's a pretty common thing. The documentation wouldn't necessarily be in my notes, uh, other than you know the photograph of of the print. But there's a like a marking, like a little horseshoe over the print on the evidence itself. So sure. the, the the prosecutor would have to open up the evidence and take a look at that, especially if the defense brought it up as an issue to point it out. But um, you know, maybe even worth it if, you know, like Laura is on the jury or if someone like her that's thinking this in her head but can't ask this question, then you can address it by just looking at where those prints are at that point to, to the point of documenting the X, Y coordinates on this right. 20 foot long piece of aluminum or aluminum foil or plastic wrap. That's generally not something that's uh, thus documented to that level. I don't know, but you know, maybe then again, it, it, you know, that kind of stuff is for like DNA as to which areas they swab specifically and clothing and, and other things like that. So I can see why she thought that and I think that was a theme throughout all of her questions is she kept trying to think of okay, is there an innocent explanation for these prints being here? Right. And she didn't necessarily say that, but all of her yes. questions related back to that point of, well, okay, fine, I trust the forensics, but just because the fingerprints there doesn't make it mean that he was transporting the drugs. It could have been left there through some other means so let's eliminate all these other means that the print could get there before i'm convinced um or just overwhelmed by the number of prints that are there that make it just unlikely that he was just 
rooting around in the trunk for so long that he just touched it so many times and then also got his prints on the inside somehow too to then convict. Yeah. Uh, and, and it seemed that she had this gravity standard where, of course, the more serious the crime, the more skeptical she got, which, you know, is Interesting. Not, yeah. not necessarily a bad thing for a juror to do given the, the cost of being wrong and what will happen to someone. Yeah, it really did seem like if if it's 20 plus years, if it's life, you know, she wants to see, you know, a, a higher bar. She wants to eliminate all those other possibilities. Well, rather, if it's just a misdemeanor or if it's just going to be probation, maybe the one fingerprint is enough uh, to convince her. No need to go any further. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, it's not that we need to generate more evidence or more latents. It, it, it was it was much more about all the other stuff, you know, getting the, the narrative, the cops investigation of being able to track down, you know, the stolen goods, whatever. I mean, the you know, that scenario about the burglary where we threw a single latent print recovered from the TV stand where the stolen TV and other stuff was, right. you, you know, in a home where the person had no legitimate access it, you know, at least from what she was saying, it probably wouldn't have been enough for her. She would have had a lot of doubts. Now, two things. One, if I'm the homeowner, I don't need much more than that information. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's, that's true. Yes. And, and frankly, if this was Detroit and I was feeling up the vigilante justice, I, I would have enough to go and do what I need to do. <laughs> go get my stuff back. Right. Right. So, but the, the second thing, she needed this other evidence that that alone wasn't enough, that she would have wanted either DNA or to recover the stolen goods from this individual, you know, or, or something along those lines. And that, again, is a little surprising to me, slightly disheartening. And, you know, <laughs> I, someone pointed this out to me that, Perhaps it would have been different if she was actually a juror, because when you have this juror dynamic uh, where she's, you know, ask, you're asking her what her thoughts are alone in a vacuum. But yeah. w- would that be different if she has 11 other people who are like, man, that's enough for me. I, I'm ready. I, I want to go home. I want to see my family. I, I made my decision. I know what I'm voting. So even though she might have some hang ups and doubts. Is there a group think where, yeah, no, she'll she'll go with the group and convict and just to get out of there, and and that's the jury dynamic that that is hard to even with all these studies, you're always asking people independently, but yeah, very few of these studies, if ever, get twelve people together to recreate a jury situation where you've got a group think exercise so even though i always take it to heart what they tell me independently that may not always reflect what would happen in a room with 11 other people let me let me ask you this glenn in light of her answers which seem to you know line up a lot with the answers that you've had in asking this of other people and combining that with seemingly more and more labs going to a a one and done approach uh, a do less uh, approach um uh, reporting out uh, APHIS hits without verifications until uh, you know follow up as questions are kind of asked or just go- going with anyway limited examinations with the, the qualification of we can follow up with more later on. 
how do you how do you feel about all of that with these some of these answers of oh no I need the inside I need thirteen IDs not just the one. That's a great question, Eric. Uh, you know, part of the limited exam is for the detective to go and get more information. I don't know that more latents are necessarily the answer here. Other disciplines or other evidence like some DNA or some investigatory information could be what the case needs. I don't know that more latents, more comparisons, answering all the comparison questions. I didn't get that sense from her. I got the sense that it's got to be the whatever whatever evidence you do have needs to fit into the big picture. That's the first thing. But um, right. I, uh, to your point, I think she did say – I kind of want to know if, you know, the cops did their job, if 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 the crime lab did their job. Did they do what they're supposed to do? And I could see how that could cost you a couple points, so to speak. It seems there is a an overwhelming sense of, and we already got the ID of this guy on this object. We don't need to do anymore. And telling the officer, we're not going to do anymore. This is all that you need. And that seems to especially when it's a case that's going to court seems to really fly in the face of kind of the 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 sense of what she was saying that she was looking for in this case yeah i it's it's a good point i i have to say that i mean if you end up with jurors like that you could run the risk of the appearance that you know you didn't fully do your job or this was just a a, you know quickie half-assed approach to it but you know we all know the reality of you know, having to do the best you can with your resources and then moving on to the next one. I, I, I have to admit, I, you know, I have mixed, mixed views on it. I would still, in the interest of time and resources, probably be in favor of limited exams and, you know, run the risk of, well, we'll, we'll deal with that later. But I would, I would rather get the officer going. I, I would rather the officer get that information within a day or two of the event so that right. they can actually go and do an investigation and perhaps find the stolen goods before they have a chance to pawn them or fence them off. As opposed to, well, this is going to take two months to do if we have to do it this way with all of our backlog. <laughs> right. Good luck getting the stuff, you know, two, three, six months, a year from now. All right, Glenn, next question. The numbers. That stuff was great. And that stuff, it, it, we're going to get into a little bit in Gianni's paper as right. well uh, coming up here. But anyone who listened to it, of course, would have noticed, you know, the this accuracy versus error rate. Now, to be fair, accuracy, uh, you know, what percent the, the t- kind of question I'd say was, so what percentage of, you know, um, accuracy or you know how reliable would you 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 put this science and let's say you say you know 99 percent or whatever and then you turn around and say well how often do you think errors are made the expectation even though it's not exactly the same so i'm oversimplifying here the expectation should be you know around one in a hundred of course but that was never what she did her error rate that she would give would typically be much lower than what she would say her overall sense of accuracy and reliability is for the you know, for the discipline. So when she said, I, th- I think she said it was around, what did she say for her fingerprints? It was 90, 95, 95%. That's one in a thousand. Yep. And that's the average answer I typically get. And the error rate being right around one in a thousand, which are 
clearly not the same. And that that is so common that these two things are very different in their heads and the numbers don't. And this is a well-known phenomenon that the frequency versus the percentage are not well understood. We see this in DNA all the time. Um, right. One of the things about Minnesota DNA analysts is they use the probability of exclusion, which is they say that they could exclude, you know, 99% of the Earth population from a particular mixture. That sounds really impressive, but it's, of <laughs> course, one in a hundred people, which in a city right. of, you know, a million people like Minneapolis area, uh, that's a lot of people. That's tens of thousands of people that could match that, you know, that profile. And jurors do not get it. They simply don't understand that, which is why I hate that's how we report it here in the state, because I think it's of all the reporting methods, it really is the most misleading and the most difficult for a layperson to understand. Right, right. Uh, it, I, I, uh, I played the little game, the shorter version of the game with my wife, but my wife was a math major in college. So when when she said... Uh, and I asked her not about fingerprints, but I asked her about um, document examination because I didn't want her to be like, oh, no, fingerprints, that's what you do. And that's just like, you know, of course, it's the, the best. Sure. When, you know, she basically, I can't remember exactly what numbers, but she was consistent. She said 95% uh, and then said 120 because, right. again, she's not – she's a math major because <laughs> uh, she's not like a normal uh, member of a jury. Uh, most – just that most jury members aren't math majors yeah so that really stood out to me but i think it's um i'm not trying to get down on laura at all i'm I, i'm trying to to bring it up because i think it is the the average juror you know that 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 most people like you're saying this is a well-known phenomenon that happens this is how people think about math and statistics and probabilities and and it's just kind of their they kind of get it, but they don't quite get it. So they just kind of use their, their gut to kind of feel their way through and say numbers that kind of feel right to them. Then taking that, but then, you know, you may think 95%, that's super low from a forensic scientist, but to the jury, that sounds fantastic. Right. And that is the typical number I get from lay people when I ask them, look, where would you, you know, put fingerprints? And it's usually somewhere between 90 to 95%. That That's the average I hear. And here we are obsessing about, you know, whether it's one in a thousand or one in 500 or one in 700 or one, whatever. It's so far off. If, especially if you're, if you are, trained to give a positive predictive value like from right. the FBI black box paper where you say when examiners participating in this study reported an identification they were accurate 99.8% of the time that is a mind-blowing statistic to jurors you have just basically said yep this is this is very reliable right and they'll probably go back to the jury room remembering the eight. So they'll say to themselves 98% of the time, but still think that's pretty good. Oh, uh, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. All right. So let's move into the paper that we're going to talk about now. Uh, this is Beliefs About Error Rates and Human Judgment in Forensic Science. Uh, authors Gianni Ribeiro, Jason Tangen, Blake McKimmy. Uh, 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 we know from Key and Peel that should be pronounced Block A. And then I'm sure the McKimmy, man, that sounds like a really Australian name. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
so I can I can imagine it. We'll have to ask Johnny when she gets on how how she or how he pronounces uh, that. Uh, but this will be uh, this is in press at Forensic Science International and is set to be published uh, shortly here in 2019. The authors are all from the University of Queensland in Australia. And, uh, well, Glenn, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, they, they, they go through, talk about just some of the history of other studies in this field, uh, talk about the CSI effect a little bit, and then get into the... Um, sort of like a formal survey testing of what we kind of did informally with Laura. Exactly. Uh, this little survey of uh, about 100 or so people. Yeah. And, and that's the whole point that I want to kind of tie these two together here where you know we can put that in action a little bit. And I hope Johnny has a chance to listen to our episode maybe at some point and even discuss her thoughts too. But if we talk to her tonight, uh, she may not have heard our episode yet. True, true. Yeah. So uh, I'll just read a little part of the ab- abstract for the listener. And, of course, if you want a copy of this, you can reach out to Gianni herself or Eric and I, and we can give you a you know, copy of this preprint. But the abstract says, you know, forensic science techniques are often used in criminal trials to infer the identity of the perpetrator of crime, and jurors often find this evidence very persuasive. Unfortunately, two of the leading causes of wrongful convictions are forensic science testing errors and false or misleading forensic testimony, citing the Saxon Kohler paper from 2005 from Science, which I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, but someday we should maybe go back and revisit. that. That is now the quintessential paper for basically saying forensic science has led to a lot of wrongful convictions. And I, I like the Brandon Garrett deep dive that they did as opposed to this that was done by some law interns and some other people reviewing some overall documents that didn't didn't go in very deep. Uh, I, I prefer a, a few other references uh, when dealing with that topic. Uh, therefore, it is important to understand jurors' pre-existing beliefs about forensic science. I would agree with that, as these beliefs may impact how they evaluate forensic evidence in the courtroom. In this study, we examine people's perceptions of the likelihood of error and human judgment involved at each stage of forensic science process, such as collection, storage, testing, analysis, reporting, and presenting. And in addition, we examine people's perceptions of the accuracy and the human judgment involved in 16 different forensic techniques. And I, I I really like that they did that. I mean, they they brought in all the forensic disciplines and sort of ranked them. Oh yeah, yeah. That we'll get to that a little bit here, but pretty cool that they did that. So many of these papers just do you know two or three of them. In fact, even in our little thing last week, we only did three. We did sort of the 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 top, the bottom, and and the middle, if you will. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, and. Uh, and, and basically, the rest of the paper is going to go into uh, CSI effect literature and and whether or not that um, you know they think that watching these shows like CSI is affecting how people look at evidence and their expectations of evidence. So one of the first things I wanted to discuss with you, Eric, was in in the in the introduction of the paper. You know, they go through a history of different things and you know error, controversy, and and so on, and things that listeners are probably all familiar with and have heard at one time or another. But there is a, a paragraph in there that brings up some research about what's called the story model of jury decision making. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and the story model suggests that jurors may incorporate evidence presented to them at trial with their pre existing general knowledge to form a narrative representation of the evidence. 
and I, I had actually had not been familiar with with that as a model. I mean, it sounds like common sense, of of course. When right. you give new information to people, they're going to find some way to connect with it. And we heard something very similar from Alicia Wilcox when yes. she interviewed. Uh, you remember all that? You remember what Alicia yeah, yeah, said about absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking when I read that part too. Right. That they had a, a that they would they would evaluate evidence as more reliable when they understood it better and could in some way relate to it or form a narrative around it. Yeah, and the later on we're going to talk about the CSI effect and uh you know the the thrust of the paper here is really looking at how watching TV shows with forensics goes into this story model and their their existing knowledge and I'm I mean I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit but with the rest of the paper I'm wondering if if it all just doesn't even fit together from an even pre-existing pre-existing mindset yep. that then gets influenced slightly by watching these TV shows and then goes into the courtroom as a juror that it's it's not necessarily the TV shows themselves it's this initial pre-existing knowledge general knowledge that they have but yes yeah, so that's influenced by these TV shows but if you have initially a distrust of forensic science or the police, watching a whole bunch of CSI and Law and Order is only is might affect that, but isn't going to flip you to being like super gung ho go police. It it's just it it's all slight changes that influence each other and build on that pre existing general knowledge and and feeling of of this evidence. Yeah, I I think you're you're spot on. I in fact. Let it let us jump ahead a little bit. Uh, do you recall what the paper found about the CSI effect and uh, how it seemed to influence people or not influence people? In general, it seemed like that the watching a lot of uh, CSI like shows or forensic kinds of shows that'd be CSI, Law and Order, Criminal Minds, Bones, NCIS, other forensic TV show generally didn't uh, correlate to uh, the participants view of the accuracy of these different methods right and and i think this goes speaks volumes of what you were just talking about that it may have something to do with again their understanding of it or pre-existing knowledge my suspicion my my suspicion here is that it's twofold and and i I don't have any way of testing this i'm just going off of what i think is common sense and it's also what i do <laughs> that <laughs> when i hear about a new forensic technique i don't know anything about that's being criticized this is immediately what i do <laughs> the the first thing is could i do that <laughs> could could i do that examination so right. uh, so one of the things we know that people do is that they will rate handwriting analysis and facial recognition uh, yeah. lower because they could do it Right. They think they can do it. Right. Well, it, it, great point. That is a great point. They <laughs> think they can do it accurately. Right. So, so I think that's one of the those first things there that 
will influence how they rate these kinds of things. The second thing is probably availability. How many stories have we heard about eyewitness, you know, eyewitnesses getting it wrong? There's a lot of that in the media. It's not oh, hard yeah. to find that. And so I think the more often they hear about certain kinds of errors, because one of the things the paper points out, these lay people that they, that they tested seem to think that a lot of errors happen very early on in the investigation during the collection of evidence and, um, uh, transportation to the laboratory. In other words, contamination and how it's collected at the scene. And I, if you were to ask me what's the number one error I hear about, the police screwed up that scene. The police contaminated that scene. I, right. I hear that much more than the fingerprint examiner made an erroneous identification. The lab analyst misinterpreted the DNA statistics. Yeah, I mean, and you can see that in the news stories that come up because right. – when when uh, a news story about errors at the lab came up and they mentioned a fingerprint error, which fingerprint error do they mention? Right. The Mayfield. The Mayfield one. Um, I mean, it's been, you know, a little while now. <laughs> it's been 15 years. Right. I, I mean, there's other ones that they could mention, but uh, it, it's just that that's the one that always gets mentioned. So to the point in the public consciousness yeah. It's not happening as frequently as as the police screwing up a crime scene. Yeah, and I suspect that they don't hear very often about the DNA mix-ups. I mean, they oh, exist, yeah. but I don't. I don't know that I hear about them as frequently. I right. and and again, if I'm just rating them, what you hear about the 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 recency effect i think is going to be in play here what what is more in the public eye i i believe that those are the two factors that are likely affecting how lay people you know are um are thinking about the reliability of evidence this is just again from years of talking to lay people why do you think that where does that come from i mean even some of the things laura said hinted at that a little bit but i've got no data or study that can confirm that for me and along with that idea of, of could they do it that, that actually reminds me of something i came across on the internet i cannot remember if it was on reddit or somewhere else something called the dunning kruger effect uh does that ring any bells to you no let me share my screen with you real quick oh wait yes I yes, it is a graph that goes up right away and then starts to curve down like a like a U and then go back up towards the end, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is basically a graph of on the y-axis of confidence in a conclusion and on the on the x-axis a graph of experience that goes from zero to a hundred percent confidence and then experience knowing nothing to being an expert. And uh, the effect is, at just knowing nothing, it's down at 0% confidence. But by the time you get to 1% of experience, you have 100% confidence that you know what's going on. And then that quickly drops back off and falls to, oh, something lower, maybe 25% confidence as you start to gain experience and get to the midpoint of experience. And then starts to go back up at the end as you become an expert in the field. But still, your confidence only tops out at like oh seventy five percent or so. It, it's uh, it, it's interesting in uh, in this conversation, like you're saying about like fingerprint analysis or facial recognition, where people think they know a lot about how to do that, but it the actual practice is a little more technical than what people realize that it is. Yeah, and then it also 
makes me immediately, when I saw that, think back to all of the uh, conversations and interactions that we had about the Making a Murderer case yeah. where yeah. <laughs> people that were <laughs> in general fairly novice at the field had huge amounts of confidence in the uh, the opinions that they were expressing about the forensic evidence, especially the one that comes to mind is the guy that that thought he had found a, quote, fingerprint mm. uh, on the burned uh, phone case when it was just, it was nothing. I, I mean, there's no telling what it was, but it, it wasn't ridge detail that could be identified to uh, to any suspect in the case. Yeah, that, that that's a very good point. And, and I'm glad you brought that graph up. I, I can't remember where I saw it recently, but I... <laughs> Me too, the past couple of days. Uh, same here, because I actually saved a picture of it as a, a discussion point that we might discuss later. But I, when I saw that graph, I will, I will confess, I don't know about you, that, that graph certainly represents me. And that's exactly how I was in the field. I was way too overconfident when I started. So overconfident in that first year or two. And I probably made IDs I would look at today and go, oh, my God, what? Especially without any training and understanding of specificity at that time. Right, uh, right. You know, and, and close on matches and APHIS. Those things just really weren't discussed. So I, I have to admit that that graph definitely represents uh, my trajectory through career. Interesting. I, so, in in summary, from the CSI stuff, I, and I'll, I'll I, I think I'll just keep this clean. They found some evidence that there is a little bit of a CSI effect, but they found they found a lot of competing evidence. That, in other words, maybe here and there, but not anything really statistically significant. And I imagine that that's probably when, when we get Gianni in here. That's probably a thing she's going to be disappointed about. That a lot of times. They either found very weak evidence or they found you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And writing papers like that are terrible because you don't have anything that you <laughs> feel like you're you're saying, right. oh, we found this. This was real clear evidence because I suspect that people are so varied. And, and like you said, there's a couple of other things going on here that – there's a little bit of yes, a little bit of no, and a little bit of maybe. And a lot of the CSI stuff, I wouldn't dismiss an outright saying that doesn't exist at all. On the other hand, they didn't really find this connection to their expectations and watching the TV show. So the the participants here, this is one thought I had. So the participants were uh, recruited uh, in at the end of 2015. So theoretically, they're answering these questions. 20, end of 2015, beginning of 2016. And I'm going back through the list of those TV shows, right? CSI, Law and Order, Criminal Minds, Bones, NCIS. I mean, NCIS is still on the air. Uh, at the time, a couple of the other ones were either off the air. Criminal Minds, I guess, is still on as well. But uh, I think Bones has been off the air for a few years now. It's obviously still in reruns. Uh, same thing with CSI, either ended right around that time or it just ended. What... Uh, I'm wondering is how well asking how many hours per week they watch these shows uh, correlates to their exposure to these shows uh, and whether that had an effect on uh, on the study here where maybe uh, I'm not sure if there were better shows to ask about because they did also include just other forensic shows, which was the, the highest number of hours watched per week. I'm, I'm now just curious because the 
I mean, I wouldn't have thought of this ahead of time, except that the data came out, like you said, some yes, some no, some in between. Whether or not asking, you know, have you have you seen like did did you start watching the CSI? Like, did you watch the entire season of the like the first five or six seasons? Like, have you seen basically every episode of CSI Law and Order yeah. or? more than half of the episodes over the course of the run if that would you know really kind of tighten up uh, the data sets here obviously that's you know th- that may be for future research but with so many of these shows being so much older heck law and order the first one started that start in the in the 80s like 89 or the or the early 90s at least i i remember early 90s but um, you're you're right it could have been earlier you know a lot of these shows are older but if someone has seen every single episode of Criminal Minds or NCIS, then they may put them into a different category, even if in 2015, 2016, they weren't really watching those on a regular basis anymore. Yeah. But that exposure and the effect to their answers was still there. Yeah, good point. And, and I wonder what kind of things like podcasts would have contributed, you know, True. Sword and Scale and some of these other ones. Uh, you know, where they've had these, you know, horrific exonerations and or controversial cases, et cetera. Yeah, that's a that's a good point of of you know how, how we started to move back in the other way, where a lot of the more zeitgeist modern stuff, like making a murderer, the podcasts that you're talking about, focus not on the successes of forensics like these shows do or did right but on the failures of forensics uh and if that's starting to influence people now more back away from what it was 10 or 15 years ago yeah that's a great point that's a really really good point and you know those shows like forensic files and the new detectives were always about the success of forensics oh and yeah how it caught i have i don't know if you've ever gone back i've been watching some of those forensic files and now some of those cases are actually controversial or a couple of them even got overturned i mean so it's it's a little interesting seeing that from the light of 15 years ago to the lens of 15 years ago you know, I, I was I was thinking about that and um, was thinking that that'd be a good extra content thing to think about anyway. You know how how, uh, how riff tracks works, right? Where mm. you you down you download a copy of this audio track and you hit play on your phone or whatever while you're watching the movie. You say you own Titanic, you just play Titanic, but then you have these these professional comedians making jokes on a separate audio track coming from uh, like your phone. Of doing something like that, where it's Glenn and Eric do essentially a riff tracks, but of old uh, Forensic Files episodes. Dude, that is genius. That could be one of <laughs> your best ideas ever. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like okay. this idea. Hold on, Glenn. I, I'm not not making jokes, okay? You know, or maybe maybe an occasional joke. But, oh no, you know. it would have to be jokes. <laughs> okay, okay, but um, you know, we maybe reference the the hairstyles and the clothing styles, obviously, Absolutely. but. But also commenting on the forensic evidence and then having a little kind of you know wrap up at the end of going, you know what, I, again, maybe we'd, maybe we'd have to do more research about an episode other than what they show in the 22 minutes of the Forensic Files episode. But uh, of saying, I'm not convinced from what was shown in this 22 minutes, I'm not convinced at all that, that this is enough to find this person guilty. Or of saying, oh, yeah, that's – yeah, he was uh, – the scumbag and should go away for forever so well okay 
that's uh, that's one to put on to the calendar for an idea to do sometime. Hmm. I can see you grin. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> you, I'm just you're thinking. grinning like like you do when I come up with good ideas. Um, <laughs> no, that's uh, that's that's uh, that's great. All right, so back to the paper here. Yes. So one of the things I wanted to to discuss a little bit was their assessment of error throughout the paper. So yeah, along those lines, I wanted to ask if they had set this up, not asking what percent accuracy they thought, but how often do they the participant thought errors happened in a particular field, which is like the paper that we discussed some time back. I think it was right. the, the Thompson paper, or it could have been the right. Kohler paper. I I can't remember. One in a hundred, one in a thousand, right. you know, something like that. If if the numbers would have a you know been different, which I think we would both say absolutely, yes. But then also better fit with the CSI or forensic TV show watching stuff, because I, I think if if you're like, yeah, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, they're accurate. Oh, seventy five percent of the time. But if you ask them, how often do you think this error happens in a case? You know, you're like, well, eh, I don't know. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it's only one in a hundred times. And then, so that then leads to one of the issues where, with the participants of this study being illogical is that the they asked about this, how the errors compile over time from mm-hmm. collection, storage, testing, analysis, reporting, and presenting. Yes. So how often do you think errors happen in all these things? So total if you know these participants are being logical at you know worst case the total of all the errors from all these things would total up to 100 percent, but the total here on average came out to about 250 percent yeah that i thought that was fantastic (laughs) so now granted you could have an error happen in collection and in storage and in testing analysis all in the same case i mean it it doesn't necessarily mean that that the total here has to be a hundred, but when you get to be a total, you know, cumulative error of 250%, that's basically almost a guarantee that an error happens uh, at least at some point in every one of these stages where from, you know, well, I guess my, my first thought would be, and I'm not sure if it came out in the question to the participants, are we talking about like just any kind of error or are we talking about an error that would affect the outcome of the conclusion? Um, like, are we talking about, you know, during the collection of the evidence uh, or the storage of the evidence, there is a uh, transposition of the, you know, of the time. So the time written down wasn't, wasn't accurate and that may or may not have been fixed later or the time was off by half an hour. Is that an error that would, that the participants meant here then does that actually affect, in some cases it might, but in many cases it might not affect the final conclusion that's reported. You know, just a bunch of different thoughts about all that. Yeah, I think we should just ask Gianni that. But my, my suspicion is she's going to say, no, we didn't really get into that. Just ask them if they thought, you know, there was error there. And, and you know, to be clear, 
when you when you when you, I just want the listener to understand. I mean, these people were basically saying, yeah, there's like a thirty percent chance of error during collection, and then during storage, there is probably a thirty percent chance of error there, and then when you're sampling, there's another ten percent chance. So that's what I mean. That's why they added up the two hundred and fifty percent was when you added up all these percentages from the six different questions. And they really thought there's a fairly high chance of error. And the, the, the biggest chance of error coming in the beginning at the crime scene, during collection, et cetera. But still, uh, you know, about 40 percent. I mean, they weren't specific to the technique. So this is this, you know, that maybe the examiner was thinking or the participant was thinking worst case, the worst technique possible of analysis reporting. But they're all about 40 percent you know, error happening in each one of these stages uh, of each case is what the examiner, what the examiner participant is saying. Uh, All the participants averaged out together comes to this about 40% number. And then they do actually mention what we talked about in that last paper. And this may be affected by the slider bar bias. The slider bar was started at 50. So maybe that, that made it uh, that adjust the number for these participants uh, subconsciously. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm looking at that right now. I didn't realize that there was a name for that. It's this Fairski and Kahneman 1992 anchoring effect that they uh, that they were talking about. I, I know I'd seen it before in literature, but there was an actual reference to it in the paper. Got it. The other thing I liked was that she suggested a possible explanation for this is that when you had lay people engage in critical thinking at each specific stage of forensic science, it got them to think more about what kinds of errors could occur and the possibility of error. And that's why I'd be surprised to find that she specifically gave, you know, like you said, uh, is this an error that can affect the outcome versus any kind of error? Because I, right. I think when you just open it up to all the different kinds of errors that can occur, they're going to be very in- – they're going to be inclusive of the – of all kinds of errors. And and I really think that ties back to the recency effect of what they might hear in the media, which is why that collection stage had such a high perceived error rate by laypeople. And so the last thing was the, the specific error rates for the disciplines and you know how accurate a specific discipline was. And their findings were that it ranged from an average of 65% for document analysis and the highest average was 90% for DNA analysis. So that's a little bit lower than I'm used to seeing or hearing when I talk to people. For the DNA, DNA tends to be 95 to 99%. I think Laura right. said, what, 99.9% or something like that? I think she said 99. 99, okay. Yeah. All right. And one, then one out of a million, but yeah. Yeah. And and so that was a little lower than I'm used to hearing, so that, that surprised me. But the 65% for document analysis is right up there with what I usually hear. And I think Laura said basically exactly that. Yeah, actually, I think that was almost exactly the same number yeah. that she said. Slightly better than chance. The, uh, the, the concerning one, obviously, well, first, fingerprints came in at 88, you know, just just slightly off of DNA, but still ranked pretty high compared to everything else. But then the dental yeah. uh, evidence was ranked at 89. Uh, I think just only one higher than it being DNA. 
And they do point out in the paper that they didn't get specific. They didn't specify or distinguish between dental analysis for identity you know, of human remains found versus bite mark analysis. Yeah, good point. That's a good point. And so granted, yes, um, those two parts of dealing with teeth have very different uh, studies and uh, rates of error associated with them and support in literature to you know back up the the veracity of uh, those techniques uh, hard to know what the participants were thinking when they when they put dental that high but uh, do, you, do you remember what Laura said for that one uh, well we specified bite mark and I believe she said it was either 90 or 95 that's what I thought I thought it was in the in somewhere in the 90s Nine, which, yeah yeah because I think you laughed out loud or, or something like that <laughs> <laughs> I I tried you know no we we talked to off, off air afterwards even and and uh, and she asked a couple of follow-up questions uh, about some of these techniques and and uh, so we got to have a little conversation about that but uh, and, and that's amazing to me because that's someone who follows a lot of erroneous convictions and controversial cases and and bite mark evidence is kind of one of those ones that's well known to have been wrong in a lot of cases yeah oh yeah yeah maybe it just it just hasn't come across her radar of the cases that she's dealt really delved into and if it hasn't come across her radar is my point right, right. isn't going to come across the average lay person true juror that, that's true uh, but you know then again it's increasingly difficult to judge the the zeitgeist of an era. You know, sure. it, it used to be that everybody saw that episode of of uh, Seinfeld and could talk about it the next day. Oh, yeah. Or you can reference a line from a movie, and everybody saw that movie and and would get that reference. Um, but increasingly, it's the, with entertainment being so you know, balkanized that it's difficult to make some sort of reference that everybody gets. It's, uh, uh, so it it could just be that that she hasn't come across it, but you may, you know, come across a juror that's read up a whole bunch on the snaggle tooth killer or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, a whole lot about the problems in that field and they're just as average as everybody else. It just, you know, it, it just didn't, um, it just happened to jump up to their view at that time. Uh, all right, so Glenn, uh, final thought on the paper here? Oh, I, I, it was it was a great read. I, I enjoyed it, and it, it you know, I, I, again, I, I look forward to hearing her thoughts on on it and some of the research. But I mean, I, I took a few things away from it. But it, you know, without even knowing how it was going to go last week. It, things that she found in the paper didn't surprise me because they sort of already met my expectations, what I knew about lay people. And we sort of demonstrated that off the cuff, you know, last week. So it, it resonated well and I think is a nice contribution to this and had some, it had some things that had not been presented before, like the cumulative error effect. I think that that's really interesting in all the 16 disciplines. So I, I like that aspect of it. And I think it's just another, another little brick in the wall of that, that research area. Yeah. You know, I was, I was really kind of pleased to uh, have just had that conversation with Laura right before reading this paper. Cause I think that really, I don't know, just those two things right back to back for me just opened up a whole lot more questions as I was reading through the paper. 
like switching it around and asking about a, a frequency instead of just a, a an accuracy rate, a percentage, and how that might affect things. And so I, I'm I know that this is uh, you know one of the first of of uh, you know, many papers that she has uh, coming out um, you know, over the course of her her research that uh, that that she and the other people down in Australia have been doing. And, you know, they've been putting out great stuff for years. So this is just kind of, for me, whetted the appetite and, and um, you know, looking forward to more, but also raised a whole lot more questions about just this continuing conversation of how best to present information to juries. And I think in a lot of ways, confirming that, that they're, they're, however we present stuff to them, they're not going to be completely logical in their interpretation of that, uh, that evidence. And, um, that's, well, that's the, that's the system that we have. Um, that's, that's what we have to consider going in and, uh, as we adjust or make changes to how we testify or how we bring evidence in and present it to the court. I think this is, you know, further evidence that we need to be, make sure we're doing it carefully, but we can't do it like the juries are a black box, you know, come in with, robotic like uh information it's got to be something that they can understand better than just presenting the dry facts yeah i think that that's very fair that's that's a good that's a good summary of where i think our understanding is of how they perceive this evidence all right so we're going to bring gianni in ask her a couple follow-up questions just to end out wrap out this episode but before that i want to mention um that this episode is again brought to us brought to you guys by go evidence forensic laboratories they're a full service independent forensic lab specializing in the development of latent print evidence so they serve law enforcement private parties corporations private investigators prosecution defense cases anyone that needs processing of fingerprint evidence uh, can go to for goevidence.com uh, for more information about what services they can offer. Uh, they're committed to providing the highest standard of excellence with the most advanced technology in the industry, and their experienced staff is ready to work with you on any criminal or civil investigation. So specifically, they're your direct source for vacuum metal deposition technology. They can process cold cases with VMD. They provide sales, service, training, they're passionate about the technology and always enjoy the chance to talk about VMD, vacuum metal deposition systems, consumables on how to maximize the process. Anyway, go to goevidence.com. Talk to Brian and Scott about processing fingerprint evidence uh, over there. So uh, with that, let's bring in Gianni. All right. Well, we're back from our little break here and now joined by uh, Gianni Ribera, uh, one of the authors of the paper here. So first off, Gianni, um, got to bring up the, <laughs> the some of the failed pronunciations uh, of your name from our last episode. Um, Gianni Ribera, right? Ribera, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well done. <laughs> okay. So, um, but the, the other authors, we did mention in the first half of this episode uh, Blake uh, McKimmy? Exactly. Perfect. Although I think it should be Block A. Block A? <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> uh, like a Key and Peel skit. Yeah, it's a reference to an American uh, uh, comedy show here. Uh, yes, Block A and A.A. Ron. Uh, A.A. Ron. But, uh, 
But uh, McKimmy, how, how does that sound with an Australian accent? McKimmy. Is it? I don't know. It just sounds like it's it's like the ultimate uh, Australian name uh, last name. <laughs> you said, in, as we're just about to getting ready to record, that we've been pronouncing Jason Tangent's name wrong this entire time. Like our five year history of doing this show and talking about many articles that he's co written, yeah. that it's actually Tangen. Yeah, it's Tangen, like Glenn Langenberg. Just Langen with a T. Right. And I thought it'd be cool if Jason and I got together and did a podcast and it would, could be called Hanging with Tangen and Langen. That would be great. I, I think you should definitely do it. Well, Glenn, the first half of the episode, I got to have the best idea ever. I think this idea might even surpass that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gianni, thank you for, for joining us all the way from uh, down under, you know, again, to the miracles of modern technology. Uh, I'm in uh, West Virginia right now. Glenn's in Minnesota and you're down in Brisbane. Is that right? Yes. And in Sunday. Yes. I'm <laughs> day ahead of us. Midday Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The future. <laughs> <laughs> Feels good. So we wanted to get you on to to ask you about uh, some of the aspects of your paper, uh, you know, some of the things that you're most proud of, most surprising, that kind of thing. We already talked a little bit in the first half uh, about some of our thoughts on the paper. Uh, so, Glenn, what was the first thing you wanted to uh, to ask her? Well, just ask her what results she was most impressed or surprised about. You know, what really stood out from because they had a, a series of questions that they asked and lots of different hypotheses they tested. So what really stood out as surprising or interesting? I think firstly, I, I was really interested in uh, getting estimates of error or estimates of accuracy, I guess, rather for the different disciplines. Um, and as you probably have mentioned, we asked about 16 different uh, forensic disciplines, yeah. uh, a couple of which you don't really hear people asking much about in regards to error. I guess we tend to focus on the pattern matching disciplines, but we also included sort of like geological stuff and um, images. We're just toxicology. Toxicology, yeah. Um, yeah, that that one actually I found pretty interesting that the, the chemistry, the toxicology, which you know, so different than the pattern was sort of lumped all in there with those error rates. Yep. Yeah. So I, th I thought to, to me, at least the error rates were quite surprising. <laughs> um, I don't know if you felt the same, but I guess we've sort of in this domain, we sort of hear so much about how, you know, there's the CSI effect and um, well, I guess, depending on which way you look at it, but uh, you know, that, lay people think there are no errors and um here we we show that the people that we surveyed at least thought there was quite considerable error even for dna that wasn't even at 90 percent. that was very interesting to me yeah i mean i i think i i had heard that you listened a little bit maybe not all the way through the our, our previous episode where we had interviewed laura and as i said many times that you know, throughout Laura, Laura represented, I had no idea what answer she was going to give, but the answers that she gave were all yeah. very consistent with answers I had heard over the years. So your results were not surprising to me at all. Yes. They are, they were completely in line with what I thought jurors believed about evidence. And moreover, the one thing I, the one thing, I don't know if you got that far in the episode, but Laura even said it. If you try to tell me that there are no errors I think you're full of crap. Yeah. There's, zero, there's no way I think that that is impossible for you to have made an error. And that the minute you go to 100% accuracy, 
the average layperson goes, no way, no way, don't buy it. Exactly. And same with Laura's estimates were very similar to exact, pretty much spot on with what um, yeah. my participant said that she, she said about 60, 60 to 70% for documents. So we had yeah. 65 was the average. And then um, same with dental. Well, I guess one thing to note here, and this was brought up by uh, a reviewer was we did ask about uh, dental, so forensic odontology, but not specifically just bite, bite marks. So, I mean, that that's right. a bit of a um, – could be a bit of a limitation of, of that. I, I'm not sure if I would say that they were estimating the accuracy of bite mark evidence, maybe some other kinds of things that forensic odontologists might do, although I'm not very well-versed in the other aspects of their job, but potentially some are more <laughs> accurate than bite mark comparison. But – Still, regardless, I think eighty nine percent is is ridiculous. That that was pretty much just as high as DNA. Right, right. And, and we were specific with Laura, and we said bite yes. mark, right? And and she put it really high. And yeah. that is my average experience that they that lay people tend to think that it's a fairly accurate. And and because of so many cases have been decided on that kind of evidence, and Eric and I were just discussing before you came on uh, that. We're not sure that the average layperson has caught up to how many erroneous convictions have occurred because of bite mark evidence. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things in that episode, and it kind of relates back here to the paper as well, is there was this disconnect with Laura's answers between the accuracy rate and then the frequency of errors in cases. So when I'm reading this, you didn't have any questions on that end, right, of – you know, one out of a hundred, one out of a thousand, any kind of questions along those ends. Is that right? Yeah, no, we didn't. We didn't. We just asked about error rates at different uh, stages of the forensic science process. Uh, it would have been good to have asked about error specifically for the individual disciplines, but no, we didn't. I found that interesting too with uh, Laura. Yeah, they definitely don't map on. I mean, I was just expecting by saying, oh, you know, fingerprints 95% accurate, then you would sort of instantly say, oh, well, then if there must be a one in 20 chance of an error because that's 5%, if that makes sense. Right, right. So that I find that really interesting. And uh, I, I, I found it, you know, it seemed like from Glenn's experience, asking these questions to many more people just yeah. – uh, not in a, any kind of research setting, but just, you know, uh, over drinks or uh, in an airplane, you found the same thing uh, many times, right, Glenn? Yeah, I, over and over and over. They always put that error rate at a, at a lower value than the actual percentage. Uh, so for whatever is going on, and, and maybe what we need to get to the heart of when we say accuracy of a technique or reliability, whatever phrasing, maybe we need to figure out what that means to them and, and it, perhaps it means something different to them or or are they just bad at that math and it could just be the math thing uh, again i i don't know why they do that but <laughs> but it's a known phenomenon in the literature that that those two things do not sync up very well yeah so with the so speaking of that error then um let me ask with the questions that that you pose to these participants you know, um, they came back saying basically about 40% errors for every stage of the collection of the process, the collection storage, yada, 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 all the way through presenting. Mm -hmm. 
did it come was the question more phrased in a matter of any kind of error uh even one you know minor one uh, or an error that was significant enough to affect the the result that was coming to the jurors that you know was significant enough to affect the case yeah that's a really interesting point uh great question unfortunately no it was very general the the, the theme of the whole study was very Try. I, I guess the main aim was to try and give them as little information as possible, but to see right. what they felt. So no, it was uh, just about any error that could have occurred in the process. It would be definitely interesting to see what percentage of that error they think would actually be consequential uh, in a case for sure. I mean, because an error at say the collection phase that, that is, a really big error, then you there's no point going through the rest of the process, if you know what I mean. The, the, the error has right. been made at the beginning. No, we didn't ask that, but that's definitely a good point. Well, that's kind of the whole point of, of, of the beginning and introduction, introductory general study is to find those aspects to dig deeper into with, with later studies. Yes, definitely. So another thing that we sort of predicted but didn't find, which I thought was really interesting, was this um, correlation between accuracy and human judgment. So oh, I was yeah. really interested in the extent to which people thought that human judgment was involved. And this is something that comes across a lot when I talk to lay people, um, especially when they ask me, oh, what are you doing your PhD in? This happened to me this morning, actually. I said, I study how uh, p- uh, forensic experts communicate their decisions and what the jury um, hears and understands from that. And they thought, oh, well, there wouldn't be much communication there. They just say that the print matches the person. And I said, oh, there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, or, you know, that the database comes up and shows it's that guy. Well, no, actually, that's not that's not really how it works. But, um, yeah, so I was interested in seeing to what extent they thought people were involved in that process and then whether that, correlated with accuracy so obviously we assumed that the more they thought a person was involved in the process then the more the less accurate or the more error that particular um, technique would have Um, but we didn't really find any sort of neat there are a couple of uh, techniques for which that correlation was significant but others were uh, there's no real conclusion to be drawn there based on the results of this study but which I thought was interesting. I thought that was like a surefire hypothesis that that would work out. And no, not at all. Yeah, I, I, I like that you noted a few areas where it seemed to be in effect, but then others that didn't. And this was something that Eric and I talked about is that you had a lot of results that showed, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no, and sometimes maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I don't know if that's is it we we just don't understand what's going on with them, or is that the variability of humans, or is it more complex than that? I, I have I have tons and tons of questions, but I liked and I really did like this. I like that your paper had a lot of we're not sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the data says this. It says that. It says a little bit of both. We can't really draw any real conclusions here, and I, I, I enjoyed that. But I thought that might have frustrated you as an author. Well, I feel like we could. Ha- we could do a whole, a whole entire podcast on this. And I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's just, it's just about the going a bit broader here, but just about the transparency of how research is conducted. And 
I'm not sure if you guys are very familiar, but there is a whole uh, replicability crisis sort of going on in psychology at the moment where you'll see a lot of papers are so neat. You know, they hypothesize this thing and they find exactly that thing and it's a massive effect. <laughs> yeah. um, but we have a massive file draw problem where results that are kind of like, oh, you know, a little bit, but not, or, you know, we can't really say much about this or, or, or just completely non-significant findings. They're not published because journals would just say, right. uh, well, this, 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 no one cares about this because you didn't find what you thought you would find. Um, so I, I was really, I, I guess as, as a researcher, when you, when you don't have your hypotheses confirmed, it is a little bit of a, oh, well, then what's going on there? And I, I have to admit, yes, based on the culture of psychology and science at the moment, which is changing, I was a bit like, well, this isn't going to get published because no one's going to care about I'm unsure. They're only going to care about, you know, we found this awesome, cool result. So um, to have this out there is really great from that aspect. Yeah, I, it's, it's one of the things I appreciated about the paper and you probably even saw some of that with Laura's answers, which again, I like. That's why I like the narrative questions to lay people is that sometimes her answers were kind of coherent and go, well, okay. And sometimes they were like, where the hell did that come from? Why, why, why would you think that? And then, you know, you know, sometimes she even said, look, if I don't, if I don't have all the evidence here or there's not a complete story, I'm, I'm going to start inventing one. I'm going to look at what they look like. I'm going to look at their tattoos. I'm going to see if they've got, you know, family members that, you know, that are in the audience that are somewhat, you know, dodgy or whatever. I, I like that she was very human about it and her answers are exactly that, that sometimes people are unpredictable and don't necessarily uh, show coherence. Exactly. So, yeah, it's exactly the same thing. Sometimes the data are unpredictable, but that's what the data says. We shouldn't be molding our papers or our um, hypothesizing after the results are known, which is a big thing that can happen in psychology. Um, You know, we should be honest about what our hypotheses were and tell the results how they are as you know, as close to being truthful as we can be. Um, and then, you know, uh, deconstructing what that means in light of the hypotheses that we had. And so that's definitely a theme that's emerging in, in science and psychology at the moment is just being open about that and not, not feeling like we have to tell this really coherent story, uh, in a two page paper with hardly any information that someone could then go and redo, the experiment with yeah <laughs> um, <I> mean, <laughs> it does remind me of some psych- psychological papers i have read before about cognitive bias yeah so. uh and also i mean for anyone that is interested just kind of on this on this train of thought of uh openness and transparency i the data for this experiment is all online and anyone can download it and replicate the results in the paper there's also a couple of things that i didn't not that not not in a selective reporting kind of style, but I, I I also asked people about what they think occurs at each stage of the process. So there was an open ended question where they just could have this free response about what happens oh. during the collection phase, what happens during the analysis phase, what happens during uh, testing, and all these kinds of things. And they wrote they wrote a response to that. So that that's something. Is that, is that online? It should be, oh, yeah. yeah. I, 
I, I was actually just about to ask about that because I saw in the the preprint paper that at least I downloaded from your your website, uh, Gianni Ribera dot uh, let's see dot com. Yep. Which again, uh, so for our listeners, G I A N N I R I B E I R I dot com. Right. E I R. Oh, dang it! Almost had it. Oh. Anyway, the in the in the paper there was there were little spots of where they, that was referenced, uh, but it says yeah. like redacted pending something something. Oh yes, is, is that link on your website then for for the data set? That is a good 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 point. So the reason why it says redacted is because uh, on that platform that the data is uh, housed, it has our names. So when you go, if a reviewer, for instance, clicks on that link, uh, that kind of sidesteps the whole review process. Now there actually is that I found out later a way to create an anonymized link. So I could have, will do that in the future. Um, but yeah, I will definitely put a link to the data set on my website. Perfect. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to see that. I think those com- any comments that stood out to you? Yeah, that's just about what I was going to ask. What are some of the ones that were like really off base or really crazy or interesting? Uh, So I'm not too sure because the study behind this paper was kind of, it it was the first study of my PhD. And I thought the PhD would sort of take this direction of looking at conceptions and misconceptions of forensic science and sort of how to deal with those. But I've sort of moved in more of a communication and communicating uncertainty uh, kind of path. So I haven't really done much with the, those open-ended questions. I'm not very well versed in qualitative research, so I'm not too sure how to go about analyzing them, but I w- it's definitely available for anyone who wants to take a look and, and go for that. And especially for you guys, just to have a look at individual comments and see what people think about different stages. But there was a lot, I think a lot of it had to do, especially in the collection phase, a lot of it had to do with, oh, the the crime scene investigator will put on these special gloves and take out this special swab. And it was all about sort of contamination. I think they were very concerned about (laughs) that and about being sterile and clean and... um, Those kind of things. It's, yeah, it, Johnny, that's great. That's it, actually what I had predicted uh, in the earlier episode when I was talking to Eric, because it's the one thing that lay people hear about in the news. I, I talked about the the recency effect and probably the, the one thing that's most prevalent about how the cops screwed up the crime scene, contamination, contamination, contamination. It's the, it's, it's the most prevalent thing out there. So that doesn't surprise me that that's what they focused on. Yeah, definitely. They'd be shocked to see what I look like after uh, doing some powdering of a car outside in a slight breeze in the middle of summer. Ster- sterile <laughs> is not a good description of that. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, Janet, did you have some questions here too about the previous episode? You said you had listened and you made some notes. Oh, I, 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 I think one thing that came up which kind of shocked me just like I think you said that it shocked you was chatting about charts and uh, bringing in sort of an exemplar print or an exemplar case. That's something I'm definitely interested in looking into. I've talked about this a lot um, with my advisors and just, you know, whether, whether bringing in a chart, say of that really 
degraded partial print that is the case print and trying to show the jury different points of comparison and what you did to arrive at that conclusion. I, I, I don't know how I feel about that yet. I, I don't know. It, it just seems that you're inviting lay people to make a judgment about something that an expert has already made a judgment about. And if so, what's the point? Yes. Yeah, well, so this is something, again, you know, years of doing this and talking to lay people. She surprised me until, again, I was reminded that her background was criminal justice because that, you know, that that's where they tend to be a little more trusting of the system. Although, you know, it, that's a dichotomy because she's not that trusting of the system. But I have found that when you bring a chart, they don't necessarily try to second guess you, although that does happen. I've heard horror stories where – Jurors have gone back and have done their own examination, et cetera. Or in the case, in the Canadian case, the judge, yeah, the, right, the Bornett case, the judge did that. I, part of it actually, I think, has to do with how it's presented. And I think the old style where you bring in a, like a large chart, like a printed chart with lines and numbers, I think is a bad idea. What I have found is that when I use Photoshop to present and I can highlight ridges and show what I'm looking at, I'm actually very clear in my testimony. I don't want you to have to feel like you have to be an examiner here. This presentation is simply showing you how I did my examination. You're effectively looking through my eyes the same way that I trace over a ridge. And what I have found is that most lay people they realize that they have a limitation on seeing it and they may not be able to see it. But if they, A, trust you and B, you're coherent with your process, they just want to know that there is a process there and they are willing to trust you. But you have to have built that trust and respect going into it. And not all, all witnesses can do that. And that's why I think sometimes witnesses that, I mean, there's always exceptions, but I think witnesses that have a hard time laying down that trust could run into trouble having lay people look at their their charts. But I actually do agree with you. There would be an amazing research project there. I could see several variables, easy latent print, difficult latent print, a good communicative witness versus a poor communicator. You know, those kinds of things. How does that impact how jurors respond to that chart? I think that's a fantastic Yeah, absolutely. Project. I think one one thing that I wanted to just add there was – it has a really good analogy with some research in cognitive psychology you may or may not be familiar with, but on sort of fake news. So if you if you if you give someone some fake statement about something, but it present it alongside an image, it is much more believable. And mm. a colleague of mine, uh, Will Crozier at Duke, he's working with Brandon Garrett at Duke. Uh, he's just very recently done the same thing with uh, a couple of forensic kind of statements, maybe not fingerprints, but something to do with, oh, if you have two pieces of cotton and you examine them under a microscope, you can tell whether they're from the same shirt or not. Or, you know, some statements like that, some of which are true, some of which are not um, either presented alongside a photo or not. And the ones with the photo are much more believable. So, and, and that fits exactly what Alicia Wilcox found. She, we, we had her on here with her juror research, which was the same thing. An image will increase the believability slash perceived reliability of the testimony because somehow jurors, like, like you're saying, 
they can relate to it in some way. And if they can, and what she found was if they can understand yeah. it, if they can understand it, they're going to rate it at, at a higher rate of reliability. Yeah, and I think a, a good sort of test of this, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I want to do here, but this has been on my mind for a while. But I kind of want to do a study where I present people with testimony, just a short, something simple, and then either show the prints that are for, for, for that particular case or show, so like a, a match or a very, very close but non-matching print. So, you know, something that would look identical to a lay person but not to an expert. And then also a print that is clearly non-matching, say, you know, like a loop and a whirl um, or an arch and a, mm-hmm. and, a, and a loop or something like that. But in all cases, sort of have this expert say these match and see what happens. I, I, I don't know what would happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I have some thoughts based on drawers research and some other things that are out there. It's, I mean, it's, it's sometimes down to basically what you see on some of these CSI shows, just getting back to your paper here, even when they put it up on the screen, the images flash, flash, flash. And there's Abby standing there saying, oh, we've got a hit when even if you if an expert was to pause it on the right frame so they can actually see what's going on with all the cutting and camera angles, you can an expert can clearly see that these things you know, aren't even close. They're not the same pattern or whatever. But in the course of the TV show, it moves the narrative forward. But, you know, what if that kind of thing was presented and, and the examiner had a you know, an explanation of why, oh, you may even see some differences here, but this is this and this is that. It's still a match. That's, yeah, that, it, it's a it's an interesting thought about, you know, who are you going to believe, me or your own lion eyes for the uh, the layperson looking at these pictures? Yeah, and I think that, that it was interesting, Laura mentioned this, and I assume maybe, Glenn, you might know better, more lay people would say the same thing where they want to see the chart of the particular individual case. They don't care about yes. past cases of, of a print that might be clearer to demonstrate. But I, I think I've been thinking about this a while from a couple of episodes ago when you guys were talking about analogies and sort of that within mm-hmm. print and between print variation I think that's a really powerful analogy to explain to a juror. And I think it just demonstrates even further the expertise that fingerprint examiners have to show, you know, these are how different people's prints can all look nearly identical to someone with an untrained eye, but here's that they are not the same person. And just demonstrating to them how different people's prints can still look very similar I think is a really powerful thing to do. And I'm interested in sort of examining that analogy in an experiment, I think would be awesome. Oh, I, I, I would love to see that research. I'm, I'm really excited with some of the things you're, you're going to be looking at down the road here. <laughs> Great. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, Australia has been on the mind recently. Cause I, the other day I saw on Google, uh, it was like the anniversary of Steve Irwin's uh, birthday or he had, anyway, it was, he was featured on the Google main homepage. So uh, definitely had had Australia on the mind recently. But uh, thank you for joining us and, and talking a little bit about uh, about your paper here and then about our last episode as well. Uh, it's It's been great having you back. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. So 
and and as you publish more stuff, definitely welcome to come back as, uh, again as well. All right. Well, anyone out there listening, um, didn't mention it at the beginning, but uh, now make sure you follow us at Double Loop Pod uh, and send any questions that you have about this episode or about the podcast in general or any questions for any of the guests that we have. You can send them to us, Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. And then we'll uh, forward them on to the right people or answer them ourselves if, uh, if they're to us. Uh, and also take a look at patreon.com slash double the podcast. Consider being a contributor to the show. We kind of have a little moment. It's like a PBS or NPR, you know, pledge drive almost every episode, but try to keep it as, as short as we can. But uh, it, it, we really do appreciate very much all the contributors that have signed on to give us a dollar, a couple dollars a month. And uh, that's definitely helping us out. We've got some classes coming up here soon. I believe mine is just about full uh, for the one in Florida. So if you're interested, uh, just send me an email and I'll double check about that. Uh, but I know, Glenn, you've got uh, you've got yours. You can go to ronsmithandassociates.com to get class information for the classes that uh, Glenn is teaching. So uh, with that, I think that'll do it. Um, the opinions expressed are those of the speaker on our show as always. But thank you for joining us and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Ah!